Welcome to Substance Free 02043, brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm Kristen Arute, and I am President and Program Director of Hingham Cares. Our mission is to reduce substance use among youth in our community, and we do that by providing information and resources like this podcast. Our guest today is Roger Oser. Roger is principal of the William J. Ostagai High School in Boston. Ostagai High is a recovery high school that was founded in 2006 by Willie Ostagai. So before we talk about the program at Ostagai High, we'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what your professional background is? I grew up all over the place because my father was in the military. He was a submarine commander. So I grew up in Hawaii and Washington, D.C. and uh, upstate uh, Washington. Um, But I spent my high school years in uh, Connecticut. My father was stationed at the submarine base in Groton, Connecticut. So I I say I grew up in the Northeast. And um, when I went to... uh, school in in Pennsylvania. I went on an ROTC scholarship and I was in the military myself for three or four years. But uh, when I got out, I had always wanted to work in education and I'd always wanted to work in urban education. So in my mid twenties, I, I came back, uh, uh, I came back uh, to Boston after I got my master's degree in education um, and started working in different types of programs in the community and in, in uh, Department of Youth Services, community-based organizations, working with at-risk youth, pregnant parenting teens, court-involved teens, uh, in education, workforce development, um, and youth engagement. And that's how I got connected to Ostagai High in 2006. Wow, that's a very impressive background. Do you have children of your own? I had my first child. This is great. I had my first son, Jacob. He turns three uh, in a few weeks. Uh, I won't I, later on. I won't. I won't say how old I am, but it was uh, <laughs> later on in life, and it's been a true blessing, and uh, it's been just amazing. And I'm very fortunate. Feel very fortunate. Oh, that's exciting. Good for you. Yeah. And thank, thank you, you for your service, by the way. Your military thank service. You. So Willie is a previous guest on our podcast, and he told us his personal story as well as the story of how, how and why he started Ostagai High and all of the hard work that went into it. The description on your website says that you provide a safe and supportive school environment for youth who have committed to making a change in their relationship to drugs and alcohol. Could you tell us what a recovery high school is specifically and how it operates? How is it different from other types of programs? So... You know, recovery high schools are places for young people who've been impacted negatively by drugs and alcohol, who are, are willing to make change and want to be in a safe, supported environment. I think the way I like to describe it is it's a school based on the foundation of recovery culture. Um, and it certainly has shifted in the 17 years we've been in existence from when we first started, uh, focusing a lot on students who are struggling with opiate-based addictions and Oxycontin. Um, and as uh, time has progressed and coming out of the pandemic, uh, we see a lot less young people coming to us from treatment environments uh, and a lot more young people coming to us from schools, directly from schools and community um, who are being impacted negatively uh, by marijuana. Um, so even though the drugs of choice may change, um, the communities are different. There's some commonalities around uh, young people being impacted negatively and wanting to make positive change and wanting to do that in a positive peer-based, uh, peer-driven school environment. And that's what the recovery high schools provide is that positive uh, peer-driven school environment. That's incredible. So you have seen some changes in, in trends over the past 17 years in terms of the substance of choice. 
What about any trends in the background of these kids that are coming to Ostagai High? Does it kind of run the gamut? Yeah, I mean, the biggest shifts in demographics for us is when we were getting most of our young people coming out of treatment and environments, that would mean that they uh, were had been struggling, that someone had identified that struggle and that they had gotten intervention, got counseling and treatment, maybe had gone through that cycle a couple of times. So they were coming to us a little bit older, 17, 18, 19 years old as juniors and seniors. Um, and they were and then they were coming and finishing their high school career with us. Um, now we're seeing where most of the students are getting because adolescent treatment has contracted, at least residential a, uh, adolescent treatment has contracted in Massachusetts. We're getting most of our young people from the schools and community, um, and they're younger, 15, 16 years old. Um, many of them have not had an intervention yet, or haven't necessarily even hit a bottom yet. Uh, they've just been identified that they're being impacted negatively by drugs and alcohol. So it's a younger group of uh, students, and it's definitely a group of students who are earlier in the stages of their relationship with drugs and alcohol, uh, meaning that they might have not even totally be committed to making a change yet, or certainly not committing to being abstinent, um, like was definitely more the norm when kids were coming to us from treatment environments. Oh, that's so interesting. Who does the identification at this point? If the kids aren't coming directly from a treatment program, how are they identified? Is that done at the school level? Yeah, so we work really closely with schools, like in Boston, all five school, all five recovery high schools. I think that's important to note that there's uh, started out with three, and now there's five in, in Massachusetts. We all work closely with our, our school districts. In, in Boston, there's 35 high schools, and there's this thing called the, Mass the Massachusetts Tiered System Support, MTSS, and we really work with the schools on uh, the different interventions, level one being universal interventions at a school like health education, level two being, hey, the guidance counselors, the school psychologists, the nurses, identifying students who might be struggling with substance use and focusing on working with that small group of students, and we do a lot of that work with the schools in Boston, and then a tier three intervention being for the most intensive necessary for kids struggling the most, and that would be um, a recovery high school. So the work is different but the same. Like if the kids are coming from treatment, those identifications have already been made and the intervention has already happened. If we're working with kids from schools, there's been an, uh, through that school system, there's been an, um, a noticing or an identification that a young person is struggling, but a lot of times we're much more involved in that initial intervention uh, than we have been in the past. Interesting. So you're working more collaboratively with the schools? Uh, yeah. I think that's a, that's a, that captures it correctly. Have you ever run into a situation where the school has identified a child at risk and the parents aren't totally on board with them attending Ostagai High? Does that happen? I would imagine it does. Um, it does, and I will say that's a kind of a, a lead into the discussion about what makes our model unique. Parental involvement, I think any school, high school, or any school would want parents to be involved, but for the recovery school model, it, parent, guardian, or caring adult has to be involved uh, in the intake process for a student coming into the school because the substance use, the addiction, or the substance misuse is not just impacting that young person, it's impacting uh, everyone around him or her. And so parental involvement is key, and it runs the gamut. You know, there's some parents who are in recovery themselves, and those are sometimes, not sometimes, are usually the most um, well, it's not rewarding, but the situations where the students do the best because there's an understanding in the family of how addiction works and they know how to set limits and boundaries. Um, and then there's parents or guardians or caring adults who are 
dealing with this for the first time. They haven't experienced personally. It hasn't run in their family and they don't know what's going on, right? So that's part of our role and responsibility as a school is not just to work with the student, but to support the parent and the, the family. Um, so yes, sometimes there's some resistance, but most of the time parents are just wanting help and support uh, for their child um, so that they can get on a positive track. So you offer this spectrum of services. I would imagine that is, if you're working collaboratively with these school districts, you work also in making a determination about the best approach. So some kids, like you said, are, are more, it's more appropriate for them to receive some kind of service outside of your high school. So to, so to stay in a traditional school environment and receive services that don't require them actually attending Ostagai High. And then there are some that the situation is dire enough, I guess, where it does require that sort of intervention. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think not every young person who's got, gotten in trouble or is being impacted by drugs and alcohol is a fit for recovery high school. You know, when the model works the best is when the, a young person's kind of gone through this continuum of where they've had an initial intervention, they've had a space to kind of become contemplative about their use, they've been they prepared to make some change, and then someone or, helped or a group of people helped and support them to make that change and that doesn't mean they necessarily had to go get treatment or counseling it could mean they just made decisions around you know living their life differently and changing their relationship to drugs and alcohol and then recovery high schools work best at that point where the young people have gone through that process and now they want to maintain that change that that recovery and that's what's changed a lot is there's not a lot of those young people who come through the public health system anymore in that situation because there's just not as many options for treatment. So we are working with schools and communities with young people who are much earlier in the process who are at that contemplative stage, like something's wrong, I'm not getting good grades, I'm getting in trouble, but they don't, they haven't quite gotten to that place where they're ready to make change. And that's something that we now are much more actively involved in. We now have funding that we've gotten through the Department of Public Health um, that helps us work with those students in a more intentional way um, and help them to prepare them either to go back to their schools or stay in their schools, or if indeed they do have a more serious problem, um, to find a pathway for them into recovery high school. Do you ever run into a situation where there's a student who's in dire need of services? You could see them prospering in the recovery high school environment, but there's resistance either from the student or the parents. Is there ever a need to section in that situation? Do you ever run into a sectioning issue? Absolutely. So I guess you're, I'm assuming, you know, your audience section 35. Um, yes. Is what we're, what we're referencing. And section 35 was one of the, the most important tools in our toolkit during the time where we were working with young people who were being impacted, who are struggling with opiate addictions because, you know, Section 35 is supposed to be for someone who's putting their lives in danger. It's that level, you know, you're supposed to meet that level of uh, seriousness. Um, and with opiates, you didn't have to argue, make such a hard argument if you could establish that someone had an opiate addiction and they were being resistant to getting treatment or help we would use Section 35s. And when I say we, it has to be initiated by the family as kind of a last option 
to try to help get someone stabilized and get them out of a situation where they're jeopardizing themselves or the people around them. And so it was fairly common uh, back when we were working with kids, mostly with opiate addictions. Now the it's changed a lot. There used to be two adolescent stabilization programs in Massachusetts that worked with young people, 48 beds. Now there's only one stabilization program, Motivating Youth and Recovery, and it only has 10 beds. And this is where Section 35 goes for adolescents. So there's very, very limited um, capacity right now for sections. And so what we see is we see kids with higher acuity and challenges in our schools um, because there's not as many options for them to get help through treatment. One thing I want to stress about that, because I don't want that to be perceived as a criticism towards the public health system, the reason there's not as many um, options or beds or stabilization in residential for young people is because they weren't being used. Uh, they were being underutilized. They could not maintain census and could not, they were not financially sustainable if you had 24 bed adolescent program and you only had three or four kids in there at, at any one time. So we've really had to figure out what's going on. We know that there's kids struggling with substance use but they're not being referred into the treatment, public treatment system now. And so shifts have been made to focus a lot more on the front end with prevention and education so that that's seemingly what the community is asking us for. Um, so that's been a part of this transformation that's been happening. So in addition to receiving state funding, how is the program at Ostagai High funded? Yeah, so all five recovery high schools, we get money through a grant through the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education that provides partial support for what we do. Um, and then because it's become gotten more complicated and the needs of the students have become more intensive, uh, we've been able, through money that's been put out through grants or the Department of Public Health, access some additional funding in recent years to help kind of increase the level of services we can provide to our students. And there is state legislation uh, that requires school districts to compensate the recovery schools at the average per pupil foundation amount in the state, uh, state budget. So we have a diversified stream of funding, but remember our schools are meant to be small schools. We're meant to serve 50 students at one time. Um, so it's, it's never a situation where we're gonna be able to cover all our costs through enrollment. You know, we're working with some of the most complicated students in the Commonwealth with a lot of different needs, mental health and substance use wise, and we need our staffing structures to align with that. Uh, we can't bring in students with complicated, intensive needs and not have the tools to support them and their families. Yes, you need that formula for success. Yes, and like Massachusetts, like, uh, you know, the National Recovery School Conference just ended. Uh, the same conference that 17 years ago Willie went with with Steve Tolman and a bunch of other people from Boston and made Oscar High and the other recovery schools happen, you know, still happening every year. And, you know, they're seeing some, you know, definitely some similar trends across the country with uh, struggles and accessing adolescent treatment, more marijuana use, um, and the young people being struggling more with mental health, which is things that we see not just for recovery high school students, but you see since the pandemic across, you know, all communities in our country with young people. One of our previous guests was Laura Stack, who is the founder of Johnny's Ambassadors. Are you familiar with that program? No, I am not. Okay, so Johnny's Ambassadors was started by Laura and her family after they lost their son. They live in Colorado and they lost their son to a psychotic incident uh, due to his addiction to marijuana, modern day marijuana. Is it, like you said, you know, you've seen a lot of addictive behavior with, um, with kids with regard to marijuana. Are you seeing any link between the mental illness that you described and marijuana use? There's definitely a link. I think 
there's two pieces of research that are incontrovertible when it comes to marijuana because there's a lot of uh, research on both sides of like what are some positive positive uses of marijuana and what are the negative impacts. But the two pieces that are incontrovertible is that it negatively affects adolescent cognitive development. So the earlier you start smoking marijuana, um, you're you're impacting your brain development in a negative way. Um, and the second piece is related to this scenario you just brought up is mental health of young people. So when you ask young people what's one of the reasons they most common reasons they smoke marijuana, they'll say, well, to deal with stress, to deal with anxiety, right? And so stress and anxiety is something that almost every human being feels, adolescent or adult. But there's a difference between stress and anxiety and having uh, a mental diagnosed mental health uh, issue. And so there's a subset of that population of young people who do have developing mental health issues, significant issues, sometimes involving psychosis. And marijuana, the research is pretty incontrovertible, doesn't help those kids. It makes the psychosis and it makes the mental health piece more challenging. Creating a, a vicious cycle. Absolutely, and we're definitely seeing that. We're, we're seeing kids in our school, much more than so before, who are smoking marijuana and it's, and it's, and it's negatively impacting or making worse their, mental, their state of mental health. And that's a tough one because if you think about it, we're peer-driven models. So there's a lot of kids who are smoking marijuana who function fine. There's a lot of adults who smoke marijuana and function fine. And in some cases, we'll make, I don't want to even say an argument because I'm making it sound like I'm on one side or the other. They'll, they'll make the case that it helps them, right? And if those are the messages that are being given out for the, young pe- the group of young people who marijuana is uh, developing into addiction for them and impacting their negative health negatively, it's, uh, it's doubly difficult. Uh, because it makes it harder for them to find a space where they can really reflect on how it might be impacting them negatively because the way all the the other young people around me are smoking are fine right so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be okay too well which is why we call it risky behavior because there is that element of risk and you don't know how your body is going to respond to a particular substance yeah, and you brought up a really important word, risk, especially around perception of risk. You won't hear a lot of these same arguments about safe use of, uh, for adolescents of opiates because the perception of risk for opiates is pretty high, um, whereas the perception of risk for marijuana has increasingly continues to be lowered because of efforts to legalize and to normalize. And then with vaping and vaping THC, it's almost become a normal part of youth culture. Perception of risk goes down. For any substance, use is going to go up. The data starting to catch up with that a little bit uh, in some places where we see marijuana use increasing among adolescents. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see that in the upcoming years. Well, it's interesting because we do see that at the local level. Our, um, the director of our health program in Hingham administers it within the Hingham schools, I should say, administers the youth risk behavior survey. And we've seen the numbers ever since legalization of marijuana. We've seen those numbers increase in terms of use. And we've also seen the numbers associated with perception of risk decrease. So for example, kids know that it's dangerous to get into a car where somebody is behind the wheel and they've been drinking, but they have less hesitation when it comes to getting in the car with somebody who's been using marijuana. Yeah, no, two thoughts about that. One is that unfortunately, well not unfortunately, I don't, the YRBS in Boston isn't showing some of those trends that you're seeing in Hingham. Although I feel anecdotally, when we talk to people in the schools and community, they're seeing you know larger issues related to marijuana. It's not necessarily being reflected in the YRBS yet. I think it'll catch up to it. And then the other piece it makes me think about is the importance of education and communication from schools, from parents, 
uh, with with your students or your children because uh, they do listen. Students are listening to their parents and they are listening uh, to their peers and we want them to be getting the right messages because if you believe in young people, and I do believe in young people, then you believe that if you we put them in spaces where we give them the right information and we create a sense of safety that they'll make good decisions or if they don't make good decisions, we'll be able to work with them to reflect and learn. And that's why, and that's what we need to do. You know, uh, that's one of the reasons like cigarette smoking, right? Even before vaping happened, the cigarette smoking was had been going down for many years and historic lows. And a lot of that was because of, you know, public education campaigns and uh, that started back in the 70s, right? And so that's where we're at now with marijuana and, you know, with vaping, like it's going to be a long haul because it's so normalized that young people just don't have a perception of risk for many of these behaviors that are risky. And that's always the pattern too. I mean, it's, it's normalized initially and then we get the data about how destructive something can be. And then, you know, the, the public health pushes to, um, to pull back on that. Willie's also said that one of the pitfalls to putting a child in a, in a program and then returning them to their own school is that everyone who sells drugs and everyone who uses drugs is right there with them. So basically you're, you're placing them back in the environment that was creating problems for them. He said that within two weeks, 92 to 94% go back to using substances. So is the goal of Ostagai High to put kids in a substance-free environment for the duration of their high school career? Yeah, Willie's exactly right. That's why the schools were created, and that's he's quoting the same research that I use for why the need for recovery high school is to create a different space for young people who are trying to stay sober. It's changed. Like, we don't have as many young people who are coming through public health who wanting to be abstinent. In some part, that's a positive, right? Because maybe that means that you know, some of the risky behaviors related to opiate use in the past have, have lessened, right? But when you're working with young people, especially if marijuana is part of their, their substance use issue, uh, abstinence is a, is a much, it's a bigger challenge to how you create a safe school environment. And that's what we still do. Like, we don't want kids in school who are high. We don't want kids bringing drugs or alcohol to school. As a matter of fact, like, it absolutely has to be the line that's drawn. Kids come to our, our school, we want them to feel safe. We don't want them uh, to have to be exposed to some of those um, temptations. But the reality of it is we're not like a, we're not like a silo, we're not a magic bullet. Like we can't put these kids in a glass case, right? Uh, I'm in downtown crossing in Boston. You know, you could go any community these kids are from. When they walk in and out of the doors, they're gonna be exposed to things. They have to make good decisions. We have to help um, them develop their refusal skills develop their coping skills. Uh, a big part of our approach is uh, connecting them to positive pro-social activities that can be replacement for use. So we're really fortunate, like we have relationships with organizations like Second Act that does improv and drama, Phoenix CrossFit, another sober, great sober organization, Spoke, formerly Medicine Wheel, where we're not just telling the kids don't smoke, right, or don't use drugs, we're saying, hey, find your passion or reconnect with your passion. And that can, that's a big part of our school experience. So yes, we want to be safe, drug-free environments for our students, and that's what we aspire. That's what we've always aspired to do, um, and our policies are geared to support that. Well, that's an interesting segue into my next question, which is um, one of the students on your web, a video that you have on your website said that the teachers at Ostagai really pushed her, 
and that she was offered rehab and therapy during her high school experience. Are there any circumstances where a student would be removed from the program? Sure. Like, I wouldn't use the word removed because we're not trying to replicate the school experience of a lot of these kids where they are at their school, they get in trouble, whether it's with drugs or alcohol or behavior, and they're suspended, expelled, and pushed out, right? Anytime that a student is going to leave the Ostagai community, it's for safety and it's for a purpose. We never just suspend and excel a student and say, oh, good luck. If a student is struggling with their substance use and it's jeopardizing their safety or the safety of the community, we're going to identify a series of interventions and help connect them to those interventions so that they can help and support. Now, if a young person has an opiate addiction and they're active and they're relapsing, then the top priority, you can use the word remove, you can use whatever word you want, is to get them help and support. Because someone doesn't just dabble, you know, you're not just gonna dabble, it's not just gonna get better, um, it's just gonna continuously get worse until, you know, something unfortunate happens. So with kids with marijuana, you know, with marijuana as their drug of choice, it's a lot more complicated um, because the trigger for that is like, if you come to school high or you know, you use during the school day, then that's something that we can't support in the community because that jeopardizes the other students. Um, and we will have to work with that student to figure out a way where they're going to get support, where they can make that commitment to supporting a sober environment um, at the school. So I look at it as it's an expected challenge. When we're working with an adolescent who's had a substance use issue, we have to anticipate that we're going to need to help support them while they're enrolled with us. Um, and that's why the parental involvement is so important because the time to be close and work together closely is, is typically the time where a lot of schools push students and parents away when things aren't going the way we want, right? Uh, it's not working out. We've tried this and that. Well, let's try a different environment. That's the time where we have to really work closely together and have trust in one another to get some interventions in place or supports that are going to help that young person be safe. That's great. You just used the word challenge. What would you say are the biggest challenges to running a non-traditional program like this one? I love it. So <laughs> I've been doing it for seven years, 17 years, I think. The challenges are self-care, right? Like just by the nature of the young people we're working with, even, and I... I believe in all five schools, and specifically Ostagai High, I am really proud of the work that's been done here, and uh, the best decision that ever was made was to name the school after Willie, because he is the reason uh, that the schools in, in Massachusetts exist. And so there's that sort of inspiration and connection to the work, the people who got them started. But just the nature of the work we do, young people are gonna struggle. Families will struggle at times. In the middle of the opiate addiction, you know, that was tough. It was really tough when kids struggled. Um, and so you have to have a way individually and as a, as a staff in a school community that you take care of each other, that you support one another, that you try to lift each other up when we're struggling. And then, then when we're having success that we all uh, can participate and be happy for each other's success because it's just, it, it can be challenging. Uh, time. So I would say number one challenge is self-care. And I think the, the big piece from a systems piece is working as a system. So recovery high schools, public health, uh, education, always trying to make sure that, you know, not we can't, it's, there's just not one place that's going to help support a young person to be successful. It's the entire community. And we have to make sure we understand what resources exist, how we connect young people to those resources, and how we... Um, how we communicate across systems and connect across systems to help support our young people. 
One of your students said when she graduated that she didn't ever imagine that she would graduate from high school. And more than that, she didn't even think she wanted to live past 18, which is absolutely heartbreaking and speaks to how broken these kids are when they enter Ostagai. Can you describe the transition that you witness these students going through? It must be pretty amazing to watch. We've had many situations like that. Kids will say, oh, recovery high school saved my life. We didn't save anyone's life. We just created a space where they could come and, and that they could save themselves, right? And make sure like the opposite of recovery or addiction, opposite of addiction is isolation. And so making sure that we're creating a community that a young person who's struggling comes into and never feels alone, never feels they're, they're, they have to walk alone. And that's when you know a young person's in trouble, when they have no gratitude for anything and when they isolate, right? Not when they're acting out. I love it when students act out. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the deal. I don't get concerned about that. I get concerned about the young person who withdraws, right? I get concerned about the young person who isolates. I get concerned around the young person when we do a gratitude circle who can't find anything to be grateful about. So when you said the opposite, the opposite of addiction is isolation, is that what you meant to say? I mean, the opposite of recovery, like being in recovery is, sorry, that makes sense. is, is, iso- is uh, isolation, right? So, and for young people, it's just so much more complicated these days with all the social media and peer pressures, you know, it's hard for them to um, be able to develop positive communities around them. So. so we've just talked about the challenges. Could you tell us what you find to be most rewarding about this program? The most rewarding part is when you work with a group of people, and when I say group of people, I'm talking staff and students, identify like goals that you want to achieve, and maybe for a lot of our kids, they hadn't been making progress towards those goals, and you create a space for them to come, in this case, Ostagai High, um, and they start experiencing success. They feel better about themselves. They feel better about the world around them. That helps repair their relationships with their family. And it's really rewarding. And the only way you can do it well is to work collaboratively with other people. Uh, You can't do it on your own. I can't do it as the principal, the teacher can't do it, a counselor can't do it, a student can't do it. We have to do it together. Um, And I think anything that's rewarding in life is usually the most rewarding things are the things that you do collaboratively collaboratively with others and that have a direct impact on people's overall well-being and happiness. I always appreciate having that opportunity. I feel like it's a big responsibility um, that's where the self-care is important, um, but it's certainly something that I appreciate having a job that uh, how I show up every day makes a difference. What advice would you have for young people about making safe and healthy choices around substances when they're faced with those difficult situations at a party, at a friend's house, what have you? That's a good question. I don't like to talk to or at young people. I like to talk with them. And so a lot of what I've learned the most in this work, and at some point I was young, is just listening to what, to what they're saying. I mean, young people, there's some universal things. They just want to feel accepted. Uh, they want to feel happy. They want to feel like people care about them. So what, you know, what I would say to young people is think about people, places, and things, right? Where are you hanging out? Who are you hanging out with? What are the things that you're doing? right? Always, always, always be selfish and put yourself first and be reflecting on are the things that you're doing, are they aligning with what your goals are um, and what you want to achieve? And just always be reflecting and thinking and surrounding yourself with as many positive people, you know, being good places, doing positive things as possible and never give up. I mean, that would be the biggest thing, no matter how low you are, 
there's someone who cares about you, there's someone who loves you, and you just have to let them help you. So don't ever give up if you're struggling. That's great, and don't ever hesitate to reach out to that person who loves you and cares about you. Sometimes, like, uh, this is a conversation I have with students, is like, you know, at this moment, you're not really able to love yourself. Like, you're, you're struggling, you don't feel good about yourself. Let other people love you, let other people care for you. We will, we will pull you up, we will bring you up, and then, you know, down the road, you'll be able to do that for someone else. So sometimes, you know, you just gotta fake it, right? You gotta tell a young person, I know you don't feel good today, I know you don't feel happy, you don't feel content, you don't feel hopeful, but that's okay, it'll get better. Just don't give up and let people help you. That's great advice. So where, 